Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Other Craftsmanship Podcast. My name is Dustin O'Hara, and I'm here with my brother and co-host, Devin. Hello, hello. And this week we are joined by <laughs> Matthew Harris of Matthew Harris Studio, awesome blacksmith. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you guys. I'm happy to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, Deb, what do you got for us tonight? All right. Got a real doozy, and uh, Matt should know this one. Here we go. Creativity is not a talent. It's a way of operating. The most creative people find a way to get themselves into a particular mood, a way of operating so that they can be creative. Uh, Matt, you know that one? Um, I don't know that off the top of my head, but it does sound familiar. <laughs> I what? I stole it from you. You it was right. a it was a that John Cleese talk clip you you posted. Oh yes, yes. yeah. Just <laughs> him talking. I just pulled a couple little bits from it. Okay, I thought that might be where it was from. Yeah, <laughs> I like two part. Well, I like parts of it. I like the idea that creativity is not a talent, and I liked um, it's a way of operating. The way he put that, I thought that was kind of funny. Like it's yes. just, it's creativity is more of a, um, a, a space, like a, a, a mindfulness of, of something other than like a focused talent. Right. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think, yeah, it's a space or maybe like a zone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Creativity is a, it's a method, you know, a place you go to and, um, yeah, yeah. yeah there's yeah, many that- layers to that. Yeah. 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 I agree. I think that, you know, like you're saying, it's, you can, you can put yourself into a situation where you can then be creative. You can also not do that and not get into creativity. It's not just, it's not about being talented. It's about setting yourself up to be creative in a situation where you could or could not be creative. I think, you know, some of that is, is having the right environment, having the right people around you, having the right mindset. But yeah, that's definitely, uh, I, I say often to, 
students that are coming into the school that I teach where, you know, they're like, well, what if my drawings aren't good enough to get in? Or what if, you know, I'm like, well, just the fact that you're asking me questions about this, or you're, you're showing me a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily about your, just your talent. Like I, you know, it's hard. I can teach you how to do these things. I can teach you how to become a better artist and designer. It's hard for me to teach that, uh, desire to be there. Right. I think that's that thirst for it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, right. Yeah, skills you can learn, but having that desire, having that the the wherewithal to put yourself into a situation where you can then be creative, that's a, a harder thing to like to teach, to want to be there. So, absolutely. There's a lot of layers to it, but I think um, a lot of people are artists. But I have, um, you know, the blessing of knowing certain people that I call true artists, and those people are just like those type of people they don't have to work at creativity mm-hmm. it's just kind of a mode and a zone that they operate in all the time and it comes out in your work i think mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think some of the some of the best artists are people who are dedicated to what they do you know well, so it's it's a matter of of doing it all the time and just continuing to work and to continuing to push and continuing and so you put yourself into that situation, you know, going into the studio and working, you know, on a regular basis, you're going to like, you're just going to hone that creative, you know, that brain space. Right. And I think too, like there's those times where it's just spontaneous and easy and automatic. But I think also, um, if you've been an artist for a long time, it's also a discipline and there's those times where you might not even be feeling it as much, but mm-hmm. you operate in the discipline and the, you know, kind of mode of operating that, you know, and then you find yourself falling back into that creative zone. Mm-hmm. Um, similar to like writer's block, you know, I, I'm not a writer, but I've, you know, heard writers talk about that and, you know, you, you just kind of force yourself back into that zone where you can operate again. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 another thing that I say to my students often when they're trying to learn to do something for the first time, they're real hesitant and just, you know, drawing slowly and not confident. And the more, like you're saying, like putting yourself in that situation, the more you get in the habit of being in it and doing a thing, the more comfortable you get with doing that thing and and you can also yeah if you get into a situation where you don't know what to do you know that you can just start something because you're so used to starting that if you start you're going to put your body your mind and your your you know your creative output into that situation where you know that there should be some type of output yeah there's a yeah the confidence you gain it's kind of a weird thing that for me at least the more people are into something or are excited about it the more pressure i feel not to start or to start, you know what I mean? It's like maybe like a new hobby or something like, um, well, for example, maker camp the first time when I did like my first moving of metal ever with the little hook thing that I made dust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yep. I, I, it's that thing. What, I Brett, was more nervous to do. I was more nervous to do that. Mm. Just be, I mean, I've been around it so much and I've shot a bunch of stuff with you and, you know, watched a bunch of videos, but the point that everyone else was so into it was more pressure. You know, you're like, oh, like every, everyone knows kind of what it should be. But I also knew that everyone is encouraging and especially people who make stuff and work with their hands. They're always happy to see other people do it and won't really put you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you're, if you're right, 
if you're around the right people, and that's one thing I enjoy about the maker community as a whole is that community tends to be an amazing blend of artistic, uh, craftsmen, um, you know, all the, all these things blended into one. And there is not a lot of that ostentatious, um, you know, ego that tends to be in what, you know, I found in some of the fine art community and some of these other like subcultures and that's extremely freeing. And that's one of the reasons why I love the maker community um, because there is an insane amount of talent in it. There's no lack of talent. I think that's one thing about maker camp that stands out the few times I've been there, you know, you're walking around and, the amount of talent surrounding you within a hundred feet is just astronomical, but the amount of ego is, um, a lot less than you might find in other crowds. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why do you think fine artists are a bit more touchy or snobby with their, with their work? Is it cause my like kind of simple view is the old thing. Like if you are a modern fine artist and you do something simple, you're more defensive. Like, when people go like, I could do that. And you're like, well, no, you couldn't, or you didn't. Right. <laughs> but maybe they're more defensive because they think it's an easy thing. And when someone like you, Matt makes a, a whole set of railings or a whole sculpture, people obviously know they can't touch it. So you don't have to be defensive. You just go like, you could try, but it takes, people can see that it takes a lot of work. Maybe for fine art, people can see that and they think it doesn't take a lot. I don't know. Yeah. Oh man, we're tapping on a couple nerves that I love to. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, right, I, I love to tap. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, it's funny because I see myself as a part craftsman, part artist, part fine artist. Um, you know, we do architectural metalwork, all these things. But as far as that goes, especially in some of the fine art, I think it comes down to ego. But I think it also, if we're going to be 100 percent honest it comes down to insecurity mm, um yeah. that is veiled and uh cloaked in pride and um you know it, we are famous artists anyone creative you know for destroying ourselves by comparison mm. and um i think there's a lot of that in in some of the fine art yeah, that's what I was thinking the same thing. Like my background is in fine art. I went to art school and, you know, got into I mean, my, our whole life. Our dad's always been kind of a, like a DIY, like before it was DIY, right? It was like, okay, if we need to put up a shed, we're going to build a shed. If we're going to put a deck on, we're going to, you know, if, if something breaks, we're yeah, going to figure out how to fix back it. Then it was, yeah. Back then it was just poor. That's all. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, we had this kind of mindset my whole life, but it wasn't until you know, when I was in undergrad and then, you know, kind of getting into making things at that point where I guess like, you know, as an artist, we're constantly put into a, or as a fine artist, you're put into a situation where you have to defend your work. You have to mm -hmm. defend yourself in critiques, like often you're defending and, and it's not always, it's not negative, like potentially there should, you know, not always negative, potentially there should be, you know, constructive criticism in those critiques, but you're always figuring out a way to defend yourself. So you're always trying to look a little deeper into the concept of what you're doing. Mm. You know, when you, when you, you know, make a wooden mallet, you have the piece to defend yourself, right? It's yeah, like, it's it, got this it either works or it, it doesn't. There's no right. confusion on whether you, you were successful in making the thing. 
Yeah, if I do a landscape painting and it's like the middle of the day, but the colors in it don't really match the middle of the day, and then I have to, if if that was a purposeful thing, I have to be able to defend that and make a point to why it's happening because it's not there to be seen. You know, the art is there to be observed, and and that art is happening. I always say the art's happening between the viewer and the piece, and then the artist is no longer there to defend themselves, so they have to defend themselves throughout the creation of it. So maybe that's part of what falls into that mindset that group of people where they're like used to being defending themselves so they're used to try to you know like you said that's ego like veiled yeah. you know pride well, veiled in yeah, ego well, you're like yeah, trying just, to figure out how do you defend yourself how do you talk about just, your work in a way that yeah, makes sense just saying defend yourself instead of explain yourself is a part right. of it right you, exactly you already yeah. have your it's a defense it's not an explanation it can be either one but right, you kind yeah. of see it as right away going like yeah well that's not really what I was going for, but I can see what you're saying there. Yeah. yeah. Well, there can be a lot of um, good growth that comes yeah. from, you know, things like that, a review where you do have to defend your work. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of art schools are set up in that format. And, you know, that that's all well and good. Um, some of the people that I respect the most as either craftsmen or artists have gone through all of that, run the gauntlet, and their work has matured to the point where it doesn't need that anymore and it doesn't need anything to prop it up or hold it up. It's just mm -hmm. on point on so many levels from design to execution. And those, that's what I am aspiring to be and the type mm -hmm. of people I love to be around and, and love to see their work. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. you know. It doesn't yeah, need the, anything holding it up. It's it's, it's yeah. The work speaks for itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's you know. Right. Like you said, I think we all aspire to uh, that type of a thing where you where you do something and it has it has its own life right away. Right. And the work speaks for itself. Um, but like I said, I think having you know something where you have a, a piece of craft or design that has to serve a purpose the the it either serves the purpose at the end correctly or it doesn't you know there's some some in there but you know like if you're making a hammer and it doesn't hammer then it's yeah. not a hammer right <laughs> you know or like but if you you know if you make a painting and it's not it's not someone's favorite painting it might be someone else's favorite painting right it's still serving the purpose of creating some type of re interaction between it and the viewer and it's there for the sake of being a beautiful piece so there's like and i'm i'm 100 percent on board with like i consider myself 100% an artist and 100% a craftsman and 100% a designer all at the same time. I think mm -hmm. those are all the same thing. You know, my, my background is artist. I call myself an artist, but I, that's like you were saying that I think that's the, the beauty of the maker community that all these makers, there's like that new name for it, right? Cause that is art and craft and restoration and blacksmithing and metalwork and all that. It's all part of just being someone who's driven to make something. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful blend. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, I want to introduce you, but before I do, I need to get something very important <laughs> out of the way. <laughs> and that is uh, football this weekend. <laughs> Let's you go. Fan? <laughs> yeah, right. you Raven, are you Ravens fan, Matt? Absolutely. Maryland yeah. Unite. <laughs> yes, yeah. sir. Nice. So, yeah, the, the, I, yeah, I was going to say the quick intro is Matt. We know Matt because, well, we met him at Maker Camp, but he's also a local Marylander and he's got a great forge and all that. I won't go into it. So 
I was like, yeah, let's go right off the bat. And I, I, maybe he's a Ravens fan. I mean, he lives near here. So we, <laughs> we, let's kick off with the important stuff. Then we'll get into the rest. Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, so Devin and I have been making our guesses throughout the last uh, two podcasts. So we did Wild Card Weekend, and then we did Divisional Weekend last weekend. So now we're into uh, championships, AFC and NFC, mm-hmm. and we have four teams left. We've got the Lions playing the 49ers for NFC, and then we have Ravens versus the Chiefs for AFC. So, uh, Matt, you can join our game this time around. So okay. we're going to start off with the easy one, <laughs> uh, which – who do we think now? Ravens or Chiefs? Who are we yeah. voting for? <laughs> Ravens, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so we got Ravens from that. Gotta go Ravens. Gotta go Ravens. Yeah, and even like I've been trying to be kind of, um, you know, non-biased. Bias, at least through like, at, or at least for the other teams, right? <laughs> but but Ravens are just so strong. Like, it's just such a, they're such a good team. I, you know, there's a reason why they've been favored throughout the playoffs. They should be going all the way. Number one seed, baby. All Absolutely. Right. Uh, and, okay, so our last one is Lions and 49ers. Matt, who's your pick for Lions or 49ers? I have this weird feeling the Lions pull it off. Mm, yeah. Devin, what do you think? I, I'm kind of feeling the same thing, but I want to see 49ers just because we how we handled them earlier and i don't uh, think i mean sometimes they say like oh well the second game's tougher because they already know you're what you are but it's like we whooped them so bad i would like i want i would like that rematch because <laughs> i think there's just so many one-on-ones that we just crushed them at that we got a real good chance against them so i'm gonna say i'd like to see the lions too they got a great story um but uh i'll, I'll say 49ers win and then that's uh, Ravens 49er Super Bowl. All right. And uh, I agree with you. I do think that it would be fun. Uh, so I agree with you, but I also we also played the Lions, and we whooped them in the season too. So I don't think, you know, although yeah. I, think, <laughs> I, I think that a lot of people are pulling for the Lions to win, and mm-hmm. I kind of like the story of the Lions. I think it would be fun to see them win. Yeah, um, but I think no matter what, the Ravens-Chiefs is going to be the best game, even better than the Super Bowl. I think so too. I think that's what everyone wants to see. Everyone wants to see the the Lamar, um, you know, what's his name, the other guy, uh, Patrick Mahomes. Patrick Mahomes, yes, Lamar, Lamar, and then Pat Mahomes well, match up. Well, like like everyone's been saying online, it's basically Lamar versus Taylor Swift. Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's hoping Lamar takes down the Swifties. So, so I think I think we have the country on our side for once as as Baltimore, Maryland fans. Well, we have, we might have the football fans on our side, but we probably like all the other billions of people that are like, that well, are the girl, yeah, um, yeah. all the girls, they're going to be upset. The ladies. Oh, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. That's the thing too. Like if, you know, yeah, if, if you believe in the, uh, in the, um, you know, potential that NFL is, you know, choosing the way things go and all the conspiracy theories, then uh, they may want to have Taylor Swift to the Super Bowl just to uh, get the ratings up. Which yeah. It well, I do. mean, they, they, they won't need it. Yeah. But too. they, they did <laughs> say, did you see the last like three or four years, the colors, the design of the uh, Super Bowl logo has been the colors of the teams that played. Oh, I did. Yeah, I did hear about. I heard yeah. something. Somebody say something about color, uh, colors today, but I didn't. I didn't yeah, it was like last three or four years. It's been whatever you know because they des- designed that beforehand when they choose the 
the Super Bowl place. They have like the right. logo and the colors in the background. So this year it is purple and red. Well, there you go. Here we go. De- Devin with the conspiracy theorist rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's do it. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Well, I'm going Lions. Uh, so that'll that'll be good. That Hopefully, um, you know, if at this point. Okay. So looking back on our picks so far, um, the first week, Devin, you had four right and I had three. Hmm. Um, last week, we both chose Ravens. Um you chose, let's see, I cho- you chose 49ers, I chose Packers, so you got that one right. Uh, we both chose Lions, and then you chose the Bills, and I chose the Chiefs, so you got that one wrong. So that's three and three. So you're still up by one, one point on me. So, so if so the this... Lions go, then we'll be even, then we'll be even Steven, and you know we're both rooting for the Ravens in the Super Bowl. So <laughs> <laughs> it could be a, a very non-celebratory <laughs> ending, or we'll have to cheers at the end. Hey, if, we, if we win the Super Bowl, I think we, we'll be happy. We'll be happy to be tied. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, man. And uh, Matt, I, that's my, I'm a freelance, um, well, I do I do replays and highlights and stuff for a lot of different sports teams. So I do I work for the O's and I work for the Ravens. Oh, so wow. I, w- I was down there last week working, and then on my way out, it's always a pain because now they park us in the um, Horseshoe Casino uh, garage next to Raven Stadium, and everyone's drunk and whatever. And it's, it's a pain in the butt to get out. Of. And this time, I'm walking to my car after the game, and someone yells out their window, "Hey, someone hit your car!" I was like, oh, wow. "What?" So I, I run it, and I didn't even see it. Like, I was getting ready to throw my stuff. Like, I was just ready to go, you know. And sure enough, the front left whole, like, panel next under the light and kind of someone really crushed it in. Oh, and, wow. and then another car was like, yeah, they just went down the ramp. And I was like, what kind of car was it? The uh, Mercedes SUV. So I ran down oh, the steps geez. trying to, like, see if I could get a tag or anything or or. Who knows yeah. what I would have done? I was pretty upset, angry. <laughs> so I probably would have yelled at him a little bit. But I, I mainly, I got my phone out. I wanted to at least get a tag. Yeah, right. Um, and I couldn't find them. They must have gone the other uh, way. And man. I, uh, but then I went to Horseshoe and told the security was great, and they got the tag. They got the incident really? all all recorded. Nice. Yeah. The one place you don't want to do a hit and run is a casino yeah, garage. <laughs> They've got about a thousand cameras. <laughs> Yep. Protect the house. Oh, That's right. Yeah. So they were they were actually really great. Um shout out to uh what's his name? Um Maurice, head head right, of security. Nice. It was like right away. He was like, We got a hit and run, show me where it is and he like started calling it in and you know, there's a police report and stuff, so they'll they'll pull up the footage and hopefully I don't have to pay anything because, you know, on on newish cars, you get a panel. It's like, oh, okay, that's twenty five hundred dollars. You're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> but so I, I think uh, I think we'll be okay there. But that was my, the game was great. We had a great time. Yeah. Um, I had some good replays in there. We we had a few uh, challenge replays as a crew. That's always fun when we nice. get something overturned, and and we get to show the coach. We get to show the you know the clips of the coach, and he then he throws a flag or whatever. That's always exciting. Yeah, because oh, yeah, cool. you're showing them up on the big screen. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you so see the coach. Watching, yeah, coach is watching them, and you're like, you're trying to show all the best ones. <laughs> there like, it is. I got it. You know, we, yeah, whoever yeah. has the best, we start to yell out because we're all we're all explaining to the the TD and the director like we're, what we call it selling. So you sell your angle. Hmm. Oh, nice. It's just basically telling them what what your best angle is because we have it's such a big in-house crew. We've got about 15 cameras. Wow. So we're all sorting through the best looks. And does, does anybody have that? And you go. I see his feet down. I see the catch here, and then we roll that back. So we had a couple of good ones, and uh, 
yeah, excited for excited for Sunday. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, it's super good, super exciting. My uh, last weekend, so Monday was my birthday, and so over the weekend we had my parents down and a few of our friends. We all got together and watched the football game at uh, at our friend uh, Sean's place, which he was at Maker Camp, so he probably met Sean. He was also up yes. at the, uh, the Hammerin, so yes. we were at his place, and uh, and my dad at the end of the game, he was like, "All right, you know, Sean," he's like. We're gonna have to come out and down next weekend, and we're all gonna have to wear the same clothes. <laughs> we we got to do it together now. It's like we can't, you know. And Sean's like, "Let's do it. That party next weekend at my house." So we'll be back there again. It's a good time. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, uh, so I know Debbie you did a real quick uh, intro, but we're talking to Matthew Harris of Matt Harris Studio, master bladesmith and design blacksmith and designer has a background in blacksmithing and a background in art and business and, um, and just all around good dude has a really awesome hammer in at his shop each year, um, at, in, uh, Principio furnace in Maryland. And, uh, yeah, we met you, we were introduced to you through Chris cash a couple years ago at maker camp and, um, have just had some good conversations, man. So welcome, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you again for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you to talk about a little bit was um, how did you, um, and you can give us the like the longer version or the shorter version, and we have some questions for you, but like, how did you get into blacksmithing as a full-time job? Because that's one thing that it's not, at least, I mean, there are, there are obviously a lot of full-time maker, you know, maker and blacksmiths out there, but um you know, doing it full time, be able to like support, you know, multiple employees. And that's seems like something that's, um, a very niche kind of community in, in the bigger community of people who, who work with metal. So how'd you get into blacksmithing and how did you get into it as a full-time job? Oh, um, well, I got into blacksmithing through, uh, a blacksmith named Alphonsus Molenschot. He was originally from Holland and moved here as a young man after World War II, um, I apprenticed with him for three and a half years, very traditional European style apprenticeship, mm-hmm. uh, just working to learn with him. Um, there was a lot of different disciplines that he covered in that time. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I didn't even realize at the time like how lucky I was to stumble into that, but uh, that was just a huge, huge start. Mm-hmm. From the three and a half years that I spent in his shop, after that, I went on to work in a shop for six years that specialized in high-end architectural hardware. It was there that I really got exposed to kind of um, architectural blacksmithing. And while there, I I worked, you know, that's one thing I'll say in, in the apprenticeship years and like what I would say kind of journeyman time. I worked an insane amount. Like I worked four tens at the hardware shop and then Ooh. Fridays and Saturdays, I went to work at like two other shops. Mm-hmm. So I was just young and hungry and, you know, wanted to learn anything and everything I could. So I, um, you know, had a lot of great doors open to me cause you know, I was working hard and, and, um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, you kind of know everyone in the community and, and, you know, things open up, but in that time, you know, kind of this whole dream is being birthed to run my own shop. 
um, a lot because I'm just too stubborn to work for someone else. And, <laughs> you know, I'm just your classic <laughs> independent artist who, you know, wants to do his own thing. And, um, you know, I, I liked hardware. Hardware was a great discipline. Um, my apprenticeship was a whole nother great discipline, but, um, I wanted to do larger scale work and, um, you know, fast forward, Heidi and I are married a couple years. And, um, I just, I reached this point where I was like, man, I've got to kind of jump ship and, and try my own thing. Or I think 30 years might pass by in a blink and I haven't done it. So I was, right. um, I was like 25 and, uh, w when we started, um, the business. So, um, that's like a little bit of it in a nutshell. I don't, I can expound on any of that that you want. Yeah. Um, what about, so how did you get into where you are now at the, your shop at Principio Furnace? Like when you started your business, when you were 25, were you there? Was that part of like the whole connections in it or how did the, how'd you get to there? Uh, that was around that time when I came to Principio cause, um, we've been there almost 20 years now, but, um, wow, wow. I, I started out, my shop started out in my parents' backyard. Um, my dad helped me build my first shop. It was 10 foot wide by 16 foot long. And then I put on eventually a massive 15 by 15 addition. And, um, but I, in that time I'm starting to do some like small railings and decent sized projects and like totally outgrew that space. And I'm looking all around and, um, really stumbled on Principio Furnace, um, Sarah Kalenda, who's the director of the Historic Foundation there, she's a longtime friend and, and just amazingly helped us get into that spot. Um, you know, it's, it's a privately owned historic site, and um, I've just been blessed to have a fantastic relationship with the owners. We've been there almost 20 years now. But, yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. It's just almost magical because... You know, yeah. the studio is a stone's throw from the brick ruins of the original blacksmith shop there. Uh, you can look down and see the old uh, stone furnace down in the bottom. Uh, there's a couple other old buildings on site, um, the old office and um, a, a machine shop. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I pinch myself all the time that my studio is there at Principio Furnace and um just very thankful for that whole opportunity. Nice. Was there like <clears throat> where, where your shop is now? I know you have the older portion of the building and then the newer portion, the older portion was there when you moved into there. Was there some, like, was that a blacksmith shop before you moved in? Were there like some machines and things there or was everything that you had that's there is stuff that you brought in? No. So when I first came to the site and that this is part of me um, coming there, uh, the, the original side of our building was a three-sided hay barn and so what i mm. and it was in terrible shape it needed completely restored so what i had to do was write up a restoration plan present it to the owners and that was part of like you know bargaining for a, a really awesome lease to start and i was trying to you know um you know just keep my cost down as we started our business and everything else but um the whole restoration of that building was just um, a, a whole another story in of itself. We had to rip the entire roof off. It didn't have a floor. It was a dirt floor. We put in like concrete 
brick floors. We brought in electricity. Um, so yeah, and that was a just a crazy time of life because you know newly married, trying to start a business, and then we're we're renovating that building and getting jobs out the door, and then eventually moving into that building, moving the shop. It was that was just a crazy crazy time. Mm, yeah, but <laughs> if there, if only there was YouTube and social media back then, really well to <laughs> capture it, man. That that's gold. That's great content. Oh yeah. It, it would have been, um, yeah, I honestly would l- have loved to go back and watch that. It would have been something. Right. Yeah, document that whole process, yeah, through video and all. That'd be sweet. Um, let me nice. go. Yeah. What was your, um, you apprentice, what was the guy's name from Europe? Uh, Alphonsus Molenschot. So he was um, born and raised in um, Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands, and grew up in the city of Amsterdam, actually during World War II. Wow. Um, he, he shared with me a lot of fascinating stories like he and some other boys. I mean, at, at one winter, Hitler, you know, cuts off the food supply to Holland and, um, you know, Mr. Mullenschott and some of his buddies are like, you know, sneaking into German foxholes and trying to steal grenades Jeez. to go down to the dike and, you know, throw them in and, and uh, you know, get some fish just to <laughs> just to stay alive. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he told me so many great stories. Like when the big food drop finally came after that winter, um, you know, it was just unbelievable. He said he saw an old lady just standing there and she was so in shock. She literally fell over and died, you know, just from oh watching. No. But, yeah. He, the... he was in a church one time and um, it actually got bombed while he was in there and he lost his, br- his brother. Um <sighs> You know, so a lot of things. And because of that, it informed his worldview. And it was really fascinating for me as, you know, a young teenage American kid who'd never dealt with that type of adversity at all to be, you know, kind of injected into his world. And he taught me a lot about like seeing the world and seeing it in a different way. And, um, you know, I learned so much from him because he was also a um, designer for the DuPont company when he came here. He was actually hired on by the DuPont company as a blacksmith. He was the last blacksmith listed on their payroll before they, you know, did away with that position. Um, And then, you know, grew into a designer. But he was an amazing, amazing man. And I owe him my career and so much. And that that entire opportunity was, you know, life changing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's such a level of perspective that can be gained just from experiences of, you know, being around other people who have had experiences. Cause that like someone, like you said, as a teenage boy in, in the States, like, and he's got all this crazy, like stuff, things you can't even imagine having your brain have to deal with, like seeing your brother die right next to you in a church, like just mm. things that are so far outside of the realm of what we're used to and being like, given this perspective so early on, like you said, you couldn't help, but probably have seen the world in a different way and like learn to see things differently and how much that had to affect you as a young like learning and growing artist and and then you know on to the rest of your life i can't imagine it's crazy yeah right i think one thing a lot of artists and uh have in common that's a real strong point is we have the ability to work around and go around problems and things but like doing dealing with Mr. Molenchap for a while, he had it just because, you know, he was dealing with 
such adversity at such a young age, it had ingrained in him like just an unbelievable sense of the work around, if you will, and, um, mm. you know, overcoming adversity and all that. And, you know, as much as I learned blacksmithing from him, I learned a lot of other things like that, you know, that, that played into yeah. my career over the years. You learned how to uh, grenade fish with him? <laughs> no, but I mean, I have great memories. Like it, it's funny because I, I started with him when I was like 14 and at that time it was super demanding. Um, he's, you know, very staunch European method of teaching and learning. And yeah. I, we definitely weren't friends at that point, but then, you know, you know, two and a half, three years go by and all of a sudden, you know, this, it grew into this kind of profound uh, friendship and relationship and we did go fishing and I just you know I have great memories um, with him he passed away about um, six years ago now but mm -hmm. um, yeah so many great memories with him yeah that's wild just um, yeah I mean I think just being in that that situation um, as a young like you say you started when you're 14 that's you know your world is completely different than I try to with my students I teach 10th 11th and 12th grade in high school so I try to give them a little bit of perspective and a little bit of like what's what's the real world like and you know I, to it to a degree right I'm there as a I'm an architecture teacher so I'm there to kind of teach them design thinking and how to like how to get to a point in their own creativity where they can come up with things that they can move forward with but I try I had one of my first teachers I ever had when I was in art school at Maryland Institute College of Art. Um, I slept late in the very first class I ever had my freshman year and I went into <laughs> and it was like two hours after the class started and when I was going to go into the class he was coming out because they were like on a break and I was like his name was Jim Hennessy I was like Mr. Hennessy I'm so sorry I slept in my alarm didn't go off and he's like that's okay not a problem he just and then he said to me he's like in my class, everyone starts with a C, and you either go up or you go down from there. And he said, right now you've, got, you've gone down. And I was like, okay. And from then on, it was like, it was such a, a great like reality check that like you, you have to earn, you know, you have to work mm, toward yeah. earning what, what you want. You know, it's not just there for you. It's not like, okay, everyone starts with an A, you go down. So you start with, you start in the middle. You, you either gain, you earn what you have or you don't earn it. And you, so like, and it, he wasn't, he wasn't upset, you know, it's like, he's like, I'm, I'm getting paid, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like college <laughs> teachers are completely different. He's like, whether you come or not, you know, but you know, but you have to like, you've already gone down. So you have to work your way back up. And that was, that was one of those moments where it, you know, that was a perspective moment for me as like a young artist learning to how to be in a world that's not you know high school everyone's just giving how, you what they need how did you sleep in on your first day was I, you literally <laughs> your alarm just didn't go off i i don't remember i think it had to because i've never been like a like someone who sleeps in like right and i, I don't, don't know, know i mean you don't you don't party your first day do no. you i mean you don't know that yeah, many no. people you kind of just huddle in and clean up your room and then like fall asleep yeah it was like first it was the, my very first week of class it was my drawing one class and somehow i overslept or something and when i <laughs> woke up it was you know an hour and 40 minutes past the time uh, that my class was to start and i was like oh no that's like, I was like that's uh, that's what you have in those random nightmares for the rest of your life you're late for some class that you're like wait i'm not in high school anymore it doesn't matter <laughs> you wake up thank goodness yeah no i was yeah it was a weird moment but i you know i'm thankful for that what he said to me it was just like a really profound moment i was like that makes sense. Yep. yep. Welcome to the real world. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You're like you've gone down. <laughs> you've gone down. So what, what type of stuff did you do when you were working with him as a young apprentice? Um, well, it was a really a blacksmithing apprenticeship. So, you know, learning all the different principles and aspects of forging. Um, but then beyond that, um, he got into some engineering disciplines and taught me a lot with that. Um, he taught me how to approach, uh, historic restoration, um, mm -hmm. to go back, examine document and, you know, build upon precedent and, um, you know, how to rebuild properly. So like we did, um, some restoration for like winter third museum and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a very, um, thorough apprenticeship, a lot of, um, bench work, you know, filing, um, mm -hmm. cutting, cutting with the hacksaw. I wasn't allowed to use a grinder or any power tools for like almost the first year. Oh, um, <laughs> and, and learning from that discipline, it's kind of like the Williamsburg Smiths learn mm. of, Hey, don't just forge it roughly, but forge it fine, forge it to shape because you're going to go over to the vice with the file and clean it up mm. and you don't want to file a whole lot. So forge well, you know, clean mm. up well. Um, but yeah, definitely a handcraft approach to blacksmithing and then later on you know adding in like um, basic power hammers and things like that um so yeah it was a, a very principled approach and but then a lot of the other shops that i went to after his i learned other disciplines mm, so okay nice um uh what was i gonna ask um so with that, so that apprenticeship you started at fourteen, and that took you up to like seventeen or so, a couple of years with him. Yes. Um, how did you? Um, I I read that you kind of you went to school for business and you also did art. Um, how did that like? How do you? So I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, it when I see your work, when I see your like more like a creative side, if when you're not. I think, I think you have a good balance of like trying to historically, you know, pull from history, but also you, there's definitely your own style. I see like an artistic style in your work that's, you know, maybe relates more to your sculpture. Like how did that relationship happen for you? Like is your, you know, if your background's more in like the traditional blacksmithing, then where did the artistic stuff come in? Or is that just, or just, um, you know, just a result of working in that field and being around it and developing your own style? I don't know if you got that whole that whole question, I don't know. Like yes, <laughs> no. I the answer to that is kind of twofold. I did study uh, design and business at Cecil College. Um, I, I I'm proud to say I aced the stuff that I should have aced, and I flunked the stuff <laughs> that I should have flunked. Um, <laughs> but the real, I would say, the bigger um, learning curve for me was working at the Cauldron Company, which is you know, the shop I worked at that specialized in high-end hardware, that is what I would call a second apprenticeship because I got the chance, I met my good lifelong friend, Mike Robert. We're friends to this day, I get together all the time for coffee and sit down and chat and talk all things art. But working with him, when I came in there, I was about 18. And um, he and I had the chance to work on some really incredible projects, fine detailing, and, and we're doing things like, um, they would ask us, mainly Mike at that point, to design um, 
hardware and then kick it back to the architect. So there's this kind of whole design apprenticeship where we're working with literally some of the best architects in the world. And we are, you know, at points designing hardware and, you know, creating things. So I call that a second apprenticeship in the sense that MicroBear really refined my eye and taught me design through kind of a working apprenticeship going back and forth, uh, you know, and, and, and learning, you know, what's appropriate in architecture, historic precedents, you know, all these different things. Um, yeah, I really credit micro bear, uh, with, with a lot of, um, teaching me design. So that was another fantastic experience, a kind of a stepping stone building block, if you will. Right. And that, how that translates to my work today is, you know, you know, you're taking all those things, but one of the things you, and you hit on it a little bit is in a lot of my work, I am when it's appropriate, I'll say when it's appropriate, yeah. I am definitely trying to blend art and architecture and my sculptural feel and, and, you know, desire to communicate the things I want to communicate again, when the, when the project's appropriate, but I also right. enjoy doing standard straight architectural work. That's maybe not as sculptural, but is appropriately designed, crafted and executed for the space. Mm. Yeah. Um, sorry guys. I had to go get the, the kiddo. I'm trying to, <laughs> no he's been, he, he has reverted. He's almost four months now. So he's reverted wow. to not sleeping anymore. So I'm trying to give the wife a break. <laughs> oh man, that that is so great and such a great time of life though. Like you gotta enjoy that because I I told my wife on Sunday night I filled my one daughter's car with gas so she could mm. go to college and then I dropped my second daughter off to her second college volleyball practice and I was like I am not ready for this stage. <laughs> I'm, I believe it or not you will miss the 4 month old uh you know no sleep days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. all part of the roller coaster. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, I have a I have a 14 year old and she just um applied for uh Carver which is an art school in Towson um and she's got all of her application done so she's 8th grade going into ninth grade next year and that seems like a big step getting into high school so Oh, it is. Right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to jump back in without trying to repeat what you guys already said. Um, so doing architectural metal work, I had when some of you, some of the stuff looks so good that it can be mistaken for not being handmade. How do you deal with that? Mm. Oh man, that's, that's a great question. And one I love to answer because it hits on a couple things that I'm passionate about. So there's, there's a couple different layers here, but one of them is we live in a society and a world that thinks that it loves handcraft, but it doesn't, it wants everything <laughs> to, um, it, it wants everything to feel manufactured. It wants it to feel and the fit and the finish and the precision of it all to be almost machine made. Mm. So, there's often that element that we're always dabbling in. And, and I like that type of work because there's a place where it's appropriate for it to be fit and finish perfect. But right. I also love hand forge work, which doesn't always look perfect. But um, I actually did a, a video on my YouTube channel where I looked at some Samuel Yellen work. And 
in this big gate by Samuel Yellen, there's all these repetitive scrolls, and some of them are quite crude. <laughs> but the, they all complement and make a beautiful statement together. And, and one thing that came out in that video that I said was that gate was not a work of perfection, but it was a work of excellence. Mm -hmm. And there is a line for me where, number one, and I drill this into all my guys, like we're always shooting for excellence. I always want the work to be excellent. But there is a point, depending on the design, depending on the space, where it doesn't have to be perfect because you need to allow that to breathe and be authentic and handcrafted. So there's points where I feel like you need to teeter on the edge of perfection, but you also need to teeter on the edge of excellence, which doesn't always mean perfection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, agree I could 100%. talk about that's a great question. I could talk about that for a couple hours, actually. I, I yeah. love that question. Yeah, right. It's hard to figure out right, where you get something so, yeah, something so perfect and clean. And then, but then what do you lose but like, by it? For not instance, being, yeah, yeah, for instance, with that, like we do a lot of hand forged cap rail on railings, and mm -hmm. so that's something that's like hammered and rough and feels rough once it's done, but we will sand and polish it to a point where it still feels hand forged and looks hand forged. But when you run your hand down, it feels amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and that's yeah. kind of another teeter totter point where I feel like you're letting the work breathe. You're letting it be authentic. You're letting it say the right things, but at the same time, it does serve a function and it does need to have a certain level of fit and finish. Yeah, I, I was um I watched the video you're talking about. Um I think I think you should do more of more of those. Like I know it, it takes time <laughs> to go places, but I think that type of like uh you know, um person it's it's like react videos. Like people it's like yes. opera singer reacts to queen. You know, it's the same <laughs> thing like blacksmith, but it's not a react video. You, you could do a travel thing where you go and look at it and you have like a whole travel video. You go to the city and then you look at the architecture, but then you zoom in on the small bits and your enthusiasm, which is what's great in the videos. Well, you know, that, that'll come through. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Cause um, yeah. I really enjoy like making those type of videos. I will yeah. continue to make them. I realize they'll never go viral. They'll never get 10 million views, but that's not what it's about. Right. You know, I think yeah. you're always best when you're doing something you're passionate and you love. So, uh, right. yeah. yeah. And you know that the people. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. People who, you know, the community that is interested in what you're, what you're showing them are going to be super into what you're showing them. Right. Yes. And so if you, if you're, t if you're speaking to that community, obviously like there's going to be, there's going to be this outliers and this percentage of people who aren't really into it, but then they're going to be into in your enthusiasm as well. So you have to kind of balance that. But I think, you know, there's only, there's only so our, the, our, our society is only so interested in 
niche, you know, we'll call like all the whole make community, like niche items that you're only going to get so much, you know, there's only like the 1% of makers who really do super, super well on whatever social media, um, mm. you know, cause it's just not what the society wants, but there are a huge amount of people out there in the world that love what that type of thing. And, you know, you know, that you're you're inspiring somebody you're exciting somebody and that's you know that's what we that's what i try to do with the channel right as well i think you know like one thing in so many different areas it's important to define success for yourself mm -hmm. and like let's take sculpture like what you know what is a, a successful work for you you know that kind of goes back into some of the fine art stuff but with like let's take social media for example like youtube for instance you know um it's easy to look at somebody like jimmy dress and be like oh i gotta do that but for me like success with youtube has meant just sharing um stuff that's valid to our business and i i view youtube as like advertisement right, and yeah. a way a way to connect with maybe that architect who is super passionate about the same details as i am mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah. For me, success on YouTube doesn't necessarily mean, you know, 10 million views on a video, but it, it, it means a lot when that one dude comments, hey, like, that was so cool that you showed this. That's, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, that's absolutely. A, that's a successful video, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's it, it, like, it's something that I didn't really think of when we started our channel was how, you know, that little, you can kind of spark inspiration and having the platform of YouTube is worldwide, right? So you can like, you can spark yeah. inspiration from people all over the world. It's amazing. It's, it's so humbling when you yeah. get like a, you know, a comment that's just like, Oh, this is so cool. Like, you know, I, I made me go out in my shop and, you know, try to grind a knife or, you know, I, I got a little like coal forge and I'm going to do some blacksmithing. I'm, you know, thanks for the inspiration like that. It's just so humbling. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's not something I foresaw when we started the channel. I was like, I kind of knew and as a teacher, like I'm, uh, that's part of what I try to do is try to inspire. But the, like the amount of inspiration that even a smaller channel like ours has, has had in the world is so humbling. It's, it's such an amazing platform. It's super yeah. cool. Well, you guys are killing it on there, by the way. Shout out to you all. The Art of Craftsmanship <laughs> YouTube yeah. channel. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I, you, you guys are like doing what I'm trying to do, but on a much huger scale where you're sharing some of those niche things, but you're doing it in a really, really great way. Um, your photography is amazing and it communicates really well and people grab onto that and, you know, they identify with it and, and like it. And, you know, it's awesome. Thank you. It is. It is amazing to see. It's like something that you know we always I always thought was important for our channel, and obviously with Dev and I starting together, that made it a lot easier for me because he's filming, and it just it gave that impression of hanging out in the shop with me and looking over my shoulder and seeing what I'm doing, and and you know, and then having someone else there I can talk to. It didn't feel like I was just in the shop by myself, so I think you know that I feel like is the thing that we've tried to get to come across and Devin's done an amazing job of editing the videos to feel that way. So you're zooming in, zooming out, like moving around the shop, like you're hanging right. out there, which is what we all want to do. We want to go to like some, right. some other dude's cool shop and hang out and like make something with them, you know? So yeah. So I, yeah. Again, going back to YouTube, like I'm frustrated so many times cause I like you guys, your videos are so well produced and shot and, and edited and they're so polished for me, like with YouTube, I mean, we're running a full-time studio and business where yeah, right. that's kind of like something that I'm just doing on the sideline for the fun mm -hmm. of it. And it's not, 
as polished and as nice as I would like, but I feel like just simply trying it and doing it is better than not, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. I think sometimes, Absolutely. you know, going back to that perfection paralysis, you know, yep. it, you know, Jimmy Dressa was inspiring in the sense that he's like, just freaking do it. So, you know, yeah. that's what we're kind of doing with some of our social media. It's, it's not as polished because we're trying to make polished work, not necessarily polished video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, and again, also going back to the perfection versus, you know, handmade versus perfection. That's when I, my background in painting, when I really started getting into painting, I was, I, I saw myself getting more and more detailed and more and more specific and using smaller and smaller brushes. And, and at, at one point I realized that that's not really what I wanted to get into. That's not what, I loved about other painters. I loved that you could see the life in the painting. So you could see their brushstrokes and you could see things. So I actually, at one point when I was in college, when I kind of realized that, or, you know, that's the way I wanted to go, I actually started using just a palette knife and I did a lot of palette knife painting because I knew that like, if I used a palette knife, I could still be like pretty detailed and it was like a lot about color mixing and about like trying to translate what I was seeing into what I was, you know, what was on the painting. But, but it made me, it forced me to make a mark that was more of a humanistic mark. Really, it was more of a mark that you could see. And so that like, I I gave myself a tool that forced me to be more, um, more human to see the hand in the, in the, in the, what I was doing. And I think that's one of those things that I love about blast blacksmithing too, is that you like, if you forge something and you give it to someone, like they're expecting to see forge marks. They're expecting, like, it's part of what they want. It's part of the final outcome. They love, like, I think for me and what I've seen that like people love the hand in some of those things. Right. And Hmm when you get into some, another hobby like knife making, you know, you can get into like the, just the finest, most perfect detail where you would never even know that someone made it unless someone said like, this is a handmade, you know, like $4,000 knife, you know? And, and I think that's what you were saying, Matt, where like, yeah, people say they want to see the hand, but then, you know, if you pick up a knife and it's not perfect because we know with social media that some knives can look quote unquote perfect, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, you know, I just see this person's like, they didn't try hard enough or, you know, or like maybe you don't really want the hand, but you know, like, I don't know that it is, that's a really, it's a crazy back and forth that between like, what is this, what is a fine polished item? What, what do we want to see in this final piece? And, and, you know, what's the standard, you know? And I think, you know, as the art for me is art and craft go hand in hand, you know, that like the craftsmanship that you put into it is what is, is how I show my artistic ability in the things that I make (laughs) that aren't painting, you know, or aren't, aren't fine art. Right. Like that's, that's where I think that's important that they see that there's a craftsmanship, a level of craftsmanship that was put into it, that the final thing does its job well. Right. Right. No, I like the goal. Yeah. I really like what you just said. And, and like, in translating that with painting and forging is the same way. Like you've seen paintings where it looked amateurish and all the brushstrokes are loose. And then you've seen other paintings where all the brushstrokes mm-hmm. are loose and it looks masterful. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the difference really a lot of times is, is design. It's, it's the fine details. It's the eye, it's true artistry and going translating that to forging i view forging the same way in the sense that i've seen forgings that look amateurish because Mm -hmm. they're hammered but they're not like refined enough 
on the artistic side of things for me mm-hmm. personally. Right. And whereas like, I'm always kind of trying to balance that with my work where I do want it to look forged and I do want it to look hammered, but I also want the lines to be correct and, and a mm-hmm. refinement to the, the work and, and to the design. And I, the people that I respect the most and, and enjoy their work, that's where they're at, where, mm. you know, you can see the artistry, you can see the handcraft in the work, but you can also see the artistry in the eye, in the, in, you right. know, the eye, eye that created it and the design and all those things. I, I just, you know, when the two come together, it's amazing. Yeah, it doesn't I, matter if it's a painting or a forging. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. There's yeah, there's that that sophisticated design sense that then that is backed up, or it's the it's the hand that's backed up by the sophisticated design, and right. that I think it just yeah, comes yeah. from time, right? Time and doing mm-hmm. it and being inspired by artists and being inspired and 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 doing and you know struggling through those tough design times. You know, <laughs> like I think one of the a really good example in my mind of that those things coming together is like um when when you see a uh, blacksmith knife right so blade and handle on one piece hundreds and thousands and thousands of people have made blacksmith knives but when you see one where there's you could tell that the the artist the, the smith who made it understands the lines of a knife and proportions and handle versus blade mm-hmm. it's very obvious mm-hmm. when there's one that you know there's a, a a, a bladesmith that understands mm-hmm. design as opposed to one who does not yet. And those things are off. It, it's like, it's a, it's like night and day and you can really see it. So Absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah. So more to what's actually going on right now, your giant, <laughs> is it a lion head that you guys are working on? It's a tiger head, a tiger head. What I've just been seeing a lot of, you know, all your clips about it. It looks pretty sweet can you tell us what who who it's for or like where's it going that is a public art piece that's going uh actually to an elementary school just outside of um dc um it was uh designed by another artist um jay coleman and we are simply the fabricators on this project Mm. and uh, i'll quick sidebar um like especially back to the early years of the studio, I've always been a realist on the things. Like if you look at pieces that are my sculpture, that is non-negotiable. That's going to be done a certain way and and it'll be done my way. But I've always been a realist in what it takes on the business side of things to keep the studio running. So we've always done a really, I enjoy this kind of crazy blend of sculpture and architecture that we do. Mm -hmm. That project is a great example of it where it's a kind of a geometric modern piece. It's a little bit outside of our normal scope of work, but mm. it fit beautifully. And the fact that we could fabricate it, you know, really well, it was a perfect fit for us from a fabrication standpoint. Mm. And um, yeah, we're just the fabricators on that piece. But um, yeah, it was a fun piece and um, it made a sense on a financial uh, point And, you know, um, yeah, it's it'll so, sit in front of an elementary school. 
I was so you've been Devin say you've been posting some stuff about it on Instagram, um, and I kind of watched the process and I've kind of you know followed along um, where you had projected on the wall you had projected the full size full scale version of the the head but in you know side view and side elevation so like how did you translate that from a flat wall because you were was that just to like get the size of each piece that you were going to weld together then how did that translate out to a 3d round head well i mean as the years go by we use more and more technology in our work so we also got a 3d print made of half of the head um and the 3d print was like maybe 18 inches tall and the the total piece is like eight feet tall so we had to scale everything but that helped Mm. immensely translate this drawing into three-dimensional form because even though it's on a small three-dimensional layer it's amazing what your brain can do looking at a small three-dimensional form and go oh yeah we just need to build that larger so we used that but we also had access to the 3d file that we put into fusion 360 we're able to take that, spin it around, snap measurements, angles from that. And then um, we use those little mini digital levels that give you angles, yep. you know, to translate that onto the full scale piece, lasers to line things up. Um, so there was a lot of technology used in that piece because it was so geometric and kind of modern looking. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, so you go from that to something that you do, like... Um... What did we saw a piece? It looked like, um, uh, I think what was it? It, it looked like grass, kind of sideways. It went up and sloped, and it looked like um, willows and stuff. What was that piece? Oh, th- yeah, that was um, that was a piece of my sculptures. You know, a, a, pe- a, a piece that I've actually been working on for a couple years because I don't always have the time to just do a piece straight mm-hmm. through. Yeah. of what I call my true work, you know, yeah. just the sculpture that I want to make that's not commissioned. Right. And I, I try to push as much of that work through the studio as possible because I realized like that's one of the reasons why I created the studio in the first place was to produce that work. So even though we're busy with other stuff, I'm always pushing that work through. Um, but a lot of that comes from just so many different inspirations of, you know, uh, arrested movement. I'm working on an mm. entire series of work uh, called Broken Beautiful that is like deconstructed flower blooms that are kind of like falling apart. And it's really mm. playing into um, some loss that we experienced in our family, losing my father-in-law, kind of that whole idea of, you know, taking this moment of intense pain and seeing some beauty in it, even when things feel like they're falling apart and so there's like if you look at the sculptures that play from that series there's kind of uh, a beauty a refinement to them but there's also a little bit of chaos and and maybe disorder in there you know just playing off of you know the things that inspired the work so um yeah that, i mean that type of work is you know there's no technology that's just um, feeling yeah feeling and just creating and that is what I enjoy doing the most is, you know, maybe a Saturday by myself, I've got a bunch of stuff in the forge, the power hammers fired up and I'm just creating work and, and, you know, going back to like where we started at the beginning 
talk about being in a you know creative mode <laughs> that's it for me just by yeah. myself you know with uh you know yeah with my favorite you know joe satriani tunes playing in my ear and just <laughs> nice. hammer down you know so yeah yeah i like how you um you recently recently maybe within the last six months or so you added a few additional pieces onto that sculpture like you'd said that you'd been working on it for a couple of years and it just like you, there was something that was missing or you know it, it like had needed some time to talk to you to speak to you and tell you what it needed i think that's really important with art and it and anything that we do is just some some time away from it i think there's a, a famous i think it's a picasso quote um about uh you know a painting is never done you just it's you eventually just stop working on it right and i could be completely wrong with the artist no, you, but yeah i i think that's uh it so that was like you had some like um additional like kind of um uh natural inspired like pods or things that you added onto that big sculpture and i it was cool because we i saw you doing that and i saw you posting about it and then we came out to your hammer and i saw it on the actual piece which is cool to see that life size outside you know this big you know nature inspired kind of uh and i the way i kind of saw it is almost i see like it's this um you know it, it, like a um like a piece that you would put into an aquarium that's like moving around all the time but then you mm -hmm. like took a snapshot of it stopping so it's like it feels like it has this movement still to it but it's mm -hmm. like a glimpse of it right it's cool right. Yeah. I, I think it and i i was watching um a time lapse or whatever of you adding a few things and it reminded me of like uh flower arranging japanese flower arranging like picking the right angle like the exact little bit you put it in somewhere and you go, okay, maybe not there. And you lift it out and you put it down in a little spot. Like, I feel like, uh, you go to Japan yeah. and study that for years and <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> right. but you know, they, they study everything to the nth degree. Yeah. Right. Well, with, uh, sculpture, especially, I feel like you can underwork it, but you can also overwork it. And yeah. that, quote that you just mentioned i've heard as well mm -hmm. um you know it's never done well you do have to declare it done at a certain point and <laughs> right. you know that's that, that's in the eye of the uh, artist and the eye of the beholder but um the, again going back to like the things that i enjoy to create for myself that's what i really enjoy about that is there's not any demand like there is with architectural work of mm -hmm. a timeline or a budget or anything it's simply you know, creating and saying what you want to say. And I think that's really what's in the heart of any artist is really to create something pure from your heart, whatever you want to speak of. Yeah. I Okay. I got a hypothetical for you. So someone really likes that piece and they say, okay, like, man, I want to take it away. I'm going to get a truck. I'm going to go get it. I want it. I'll pay, you know, whatever the fair price and if you feel it's not done, what do you do? Because to them, they love it. They feel it's done. They think it's perfect as it is. But to you, maybe you're not finished with it. What do you do? Well, that's where I do draw a hard line. With, with our commission work, especially architectural work, I almost enjoy bending to the customer because I'm serving the customer in that mm -hmm. case. But mm -hmm. with what you just asked, um, I'm not going to bend and I'm not going to change because I feel like it's really important to say true to yourself and your vision and what you want to say to the point that I don't know if you've seen, I did a, a series of horse sculptures 
And I had a um, really good client that we had done a bunch of work for. Um, I had two of those horses in progress and she asked me, she said, I want it to look like this and I want you to just do this to it. And she would basically have bought it. And I was like, okay, I, I respect that, but um, I'm not willing to do that in this case because that's my sculpture. Um, right. It's going to look the way that I want it to look. And so there's there's a line there for me, at least personally, where um, on one hand, I'm I'm happy and I almost I, I take joy in serving my customers on one side like that. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, like, nope, I'm a stubborn <laughs> bastard and you're not getting that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's, that makes sense. You know, it's what the I guess it's what's. Maybe, you know, it's it's the perspective of the final piece, right? Is this a piece that is representing you as an artist? Um, and there, there, we get back to, the, like, the difference between what is art and what is craft and if it's the same thing. Like, is it representing you as an artist? This is your piece and this is the what you wanted to say. It's, it's making your statement. Or is it you as a craftsman where you, like, you are – you are going to be proud of the piece you put out there and you know, it's the best mm -hmm. of your ability, but it's also, you know, at the, in the end, it's, it, it may have been like, like the tiger head, you know, that's a design from a completely different artist. Like you can be proud of the work and the craftsmanship you put into that piece as in a completely different sense that you can be, um, that you can come away feeling good about yourself saying that this is my completed art piece. This is the statement I wanted to say with that. I guess that, maybe that's the balance is like in the end, can you say that you're happy with the product in what it's supposed to mean to you? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want them to, um, just trust you. If you like, if you like what I'm doing, trust me to finish it properly. And then I'll, I'll be happy to give it to you or, you know, whatever the case. Right. Yes. And a lot yeah. of people ask me like how I get our work and it goes along with what you were just saying. I have maintained for years and it's held true that you do the work that you do and people will seek you out for it. And the, that's yeah. held so true for us because yeah. there's been so many projects where people come and they're like, Hey, we love this that you did. And we would love for you to do our project. And, you know, oftentimes we won't even bid against anyone for the project. They're mm -hmm. coming to you for a certain design sense. They're coming to you for a certain artistic sense Right. And that that's where the real value is. And that's what I enjoy very much. That's the, one of the biggest compliments. Yeah. 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 So is that that's like when you get that opportunity to do something that is um, more like, you know, more serves a purpose, like a railing that is very much you know, art, like more artistic rather than tr traditional, or I wouldn't say artistic, but you know what I mean? Like more of like a creative design. Like you have some super, super gorgeous kind of natural, you know, nature based, um, kind of engraving kind of looking things where I think, you know, some of the work that I've seen from you, um, in that sense of like, almost like art nouveau is some of the most gorgeous and different pieces of architectural, um, blacksmithing that I've seen, like is, when when you do a piece like that are people coming to you and giving you like creative freedom for like design this thing for me and have you know do whatever you want or or is it some kind of somewhere in between or all all everything and above well it's often somewhere in between but like for instance one of my favorite projects was 
we were approached by a builder and an architect and the interior designer. And we were basically interviewed for this job by that team. We never met the client. We were just interviewed by this, this team. And what they said to us was, they said, our client wants more of a craftsman and artisan designed railing mm -hmm. than what I would draw. That's what the architect said to me in the meeting. He said, so we, we want to give you the freedom to do that. And we are, you know, approaching you to create and to design this piece. And that is one of the biggest compliments. And that's really, as far as architectural work goes, that's the work that I enjoy doing the most on that side, because you have yeah. that freedom, you know, because it's your design, because, you know, it's, it's, it's your idea, you know, your mm -hmm. baby, so to speak. Um, I think that's for me, the best of both worlds. Yeah, it's a it's like it's like the perfect balance, the perfect melding of the artistic creative side with the the crafted, you know, serves a purpose side. I think that's right. one of the things I love about blacksmithing in general is that, you know, it's it tends to be you're making a tool, you're making something for somebody that it's not just a you know, just not just a metal sculpture, but it ends up, you know, you can have a you know, a beautiful spoon or something that is, mm -hmm. that just has all the craft and the beauty in it, but then the <laughs> designs there and it serves the purpose, but it also has all like everything that I love about art is there in it. I, yeah, that's, it's one of those that I think that's why I keep going back to it in my own work and keep, you know, getting drawn back out to the forge. Cause there's just something so, um, so like, so like physical and so real about, about, blacksmithing and about forging something and moving steel, you know, coming away with this thing that's been, um, forged in fire <laughs> right. and, uh, you know, and made and shaped and, and so primal and so like useful. I don't know. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's amazing because yeah, it's, it's, I mean, essentially what you're talking about is functional art and what's amazing. Mm -hmm. If you make a hammer or an ax or, you know, that's a physical piece that's beautiful, but someone is also literally putting their hands on it and using it. And it's not dissimilar when we make a railing and someone goes right. down the stairs and puts yeah. their hands on it and they're looking at it and it's beautiful, but it's also tied in, you know, it, it, it's an interactive piece. And that that's re the really cool thing about a lot of forge work is it's so permanent and physical that people interact with it on some level. Yeah, you get more to me. Like, what's the um, dust? What's the Wrangler Star? Oh, the Fizz, right? You get that. Yeah, the like, <laughs> the thing you can sculpture is not necessarily to be touched, but like viewed and admired. But you're not gonna, you, you know, it's usually don't touch art unless the artist says come up and touch it, you know, <laughs> swing it around, do whatever. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about some architectural work and being a railing in a home that is like very personal and that's it's you're making memories with like a with a family their kids going up and down and they they get to feel that every day and and be a part of that work every day that has to be equally as satisfying as a nice sculpture I oh think. it is absolutely it, it's uh it's very satisfying and and uh you know just to know that they entrusted you to create that piece and it's uh yeah it, it, that's very enjoying yeah, man. man, that's, yeah, you were saying like that, that, uh, don't touch. I, I've 
often thought, you know, as a, as a painter, like, I wish I could go to a museum and like touch the paintings. Cause I love touching my own paintings. <laughs> I'm like, don't worry. It's fine. I'm a painter. I understand. Like I'll do it. I like, washed my hands. You know, but yeah, like, yeah. Still walk, walk into the it. Met and try that on a Monet. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like if Monet was here, I'm sure he'd want me to touch it. I'm sure he touched the painting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll go ask Monet. Get out of here, pal. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Cool. All right, Matt. Well, usually like when we, when we wrap up the podcast, we love to ask the makers that we're interviewing, um, to tell us a disaster story. Um, and we call them disaster stories just because it's one of those things that I think all makers have. And in this, in this day and age of social media, we don't see those disasters. We don't see those kind of failures that people had to get over and get by, but it's such a fun realization that everyone has these moments where they make something that just either completely fails or they do something that you know they wish like maybe you wish you caught it on camera but you didn't or maybe you would you hope that you're happy that you never did catch it on camera but um do you have a, a disaster story to to tell us for the, oh, man. Uh, for the listeners I, I have several and i'm i'm not mm -hmm. too, too proud to say i'm um so one of the earliest ones was after i'd wrapped up my apprenticeship and I was still working in my dad's backyard. One of the first architectural jobs I did um, was a really cool forged grab rail that also had a post that mounted down the basement. And so create this piece, um, get it powder coated, uh, a beautiful like um, translucent clear color. And I take it and go to install it in the, the customer's house. And it was three feet too long, the, the top <laughs> portion where the top oh, bracket no. should have mounted to the wall. It was literally like sticking up out of the floor, <laughs> three feet. <laughs> and, you know, just, you definitely have to chalk that one up to total beginners, uh, you know, stu stupidity. I mean, Measure today- once, cut once. <laughs> yeah, today we draw that in CAD and that would, you know, never happen. But, um, you know, that's just being young and, and uh, dumb. And um, yeah, that's that's one that I I won't forget. Um, I, I'll were you give able you. To, were you able to salvage it? Like he just no. He just he just told them that's his artistic vision. Don't <laughs> don't mess with it. All right. You either want to. I'll I'll take it right now. I'll install it somewhere else. Oh uh, no! It was super embarrassing. I had to take it back and cut it and then get it repowder coated and, and oh, get it man. Mm, right, get right. it right. But um, uh. no. Two two more quick ones. We did a. Yeah. Uh, a, a great um, bank table, a, a copy of a Samuel Yellen piece for a bank up in Gettysburg. Uh, we submitted drawings to the interior designer, create the piece, go to deliver it. I actually wasn't there for delivery. It was my wife and my, my dad and one of our guys, and they can't get it through the door of the bank. Oh, and no. <laughs> it, it was the interior designer's fault because she signed off on the drawings, all the dimensions. So they had to bring the table back. We had to cut it apart. We had to modify it so the top bolted onto the base, and that was a whole debacle. Um, uh. But thankfully, that one wasn't our fault. Um, <laughs> but um, but no, I I'll end that question by saying this: like, um, so I've had the studio now just shy of twenty years, and I'll say about eight nine years ago, I had gotten to a place where I really felt like I had plateaued. Um, the studio plateaued. We were just kind of in an unhealthy place. And I had one or two jobs in a row 
they were good, but they weren't great and they weren't excellent. And I even got feedback from a customer on one that was basically like, hey, you know, thanks for the work, but we're actually a little disappointed. And I'll say that, you know, I say that to be completely honest because I think there is too much fakery and too much um, BS with a lot of people. And so what I did in that moment was um, I actually wound up reading a, a book called Necessary Endings by Dr. Henry Cloud. He's a psychologist. And in a nutshell, it's the premise of that book was identify the things you're good at, run with them, identify what you suck at and delegate. And so mm -hmm. at that mm -hmm. point, I realized, well, I'm really killing it on certain levels and I'm really not on other levels. And if I'm going to grow and do better, I need to um, delegate. So that's actually the point where my wife, Heidi, joined the studio and brought mm -hmm. in a lot of her administrative eye. And she really helped uh, take us to the next level because, you know, some of the stuff that I was sucking at, we, we started to overcome and kind of turn a page. I'm really proud of that moment, even though I'm not mm. proud to say, Hey, I, you know, I was at a point where I wasn't doing some of my best work, but right. I'm proud of it in the sense that like, there's so much bull crap out there where everyone, especially Instagram, you know, YouTube, we all put our best work out there. Mm. No one wants to show. Right those failures and those moments where, Hey, it wasn't how it should have been, but you know, you never improve and get better unless you take some of those failures and some of those gut punches and turn them around and learn from them, mm -hmm. make, make, you know, actionable steps to improve on them. And I can say now, you know, um, you know, we're much better off, like the whole new side of the studio that came after Heidi, you know, came on board and we realized, well, you know, we have to grow and, you know, grow our physical space to produce some of this work and just things you, mm -hmm. you just, you can take failure and turn it into some of your greatest success. And I think the biggest lie that's being perpetuated in, you know, kind of our modern world it kind of goes back to that lie of perfection and everybody, you know, is doing everything and killing everything. No, other people shit stinks too. And right. we, yeah. we all have those points, you know, um, even if people aren't honest enough to, you know, say that, you know, we all have those points. So I'm actually really proud of that. And, and we, we've come light years beyond that. I mean, we have seven of us in the studio now. We would have never gotten to that point mm. if I wasn't honest with myself and being like, nope, you got to change. Um, you got to delegate. You got to, you know, evolve and, you know, grow into something stronger. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's it's such a, a um, great, or at least I know with my wife, she asks simple questions that I normally wouldn't explain to someone. So then you're like, that's just how it is. And she's like, well, what do you mean? That seems silly. Why would you do it that way? And then just, it's like the act of teaching. It's just having to try to explain yourself to someone. You need to have the, uh, the, the, the other person there to like question and figure things out and go, yeah, I know maybe that's the way it is, but is that the way we have to do it? Like from just an outsider's view and also from a wife's view who can definitely check you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, um, I will say like having, you know, get, going through a moment like that, that's, it's gotta be super humbling and being able to take that humbling moment 
or take that, you know, gut punch moment and turn it into like a, a step forward. That's a, it's not an easy thing to do. So I think, you know, having, having moments like that. And I think a lot of, a lot of us have moments like that. Um, but really being able to take advantage of that moment, I think is really important. And it seems like that's what you guys have done. And, uh, yeah, I can't, you know, yeah, I, I've had, I've had the same thing. I've had people tell me that they were like, were not happy with something I did. And that's something I feel like I've always prided myself to be, you know, that I know that I'm always trying my best. So then when someone sees something about you that they're like, I see that you're not trying your best. And then you realize that you're like, Oh, I thought I was, but maybe I'm not, or maybe I need, like you said, maybe there's, there's another way to go about it. That, that my best isn't only from me. It comes from a, a committee of people that can help me be my best. Yeah. Right. I think that's important. Yeah. yeah cool. Yeah. Right on. Deb, you have any other uh, questions for Matt before we wrap it up? No, we hit the hit hit most of the stuff. No, I, yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Matt. We're I'm fans of your work. I was so it was really nice this year to get. We tried to go last year, but we both had things. Dustin, of course, had something sailing or something. I don't know. And then <laughs> I had something else, but it was really a beautiful place. Anyone who's around or within um, has them every year. The hammer in. There's there's guys working and stuff, and there's auction not auctions. There's um, raffles, and it's just a great place to visit so come come see matt come see us i'm sure we'll be there every year now so yeah absolutely. if you're around yeah. check his spot out it's sweet yeah we uh it, we all we, we've done that uh 15 years now it's always a yeah. free event and um one of the reasons why i've done it is because i like to do things that other people don't do and there's not that many full-time artists or full-time shops like us right. who kick the doors open for a yeah. day and yeah. do that because heck if i knew about other people doing that i'd go to their events um yeah you know i but uh, you know i just feel like you know that's one of the thing i love about the maker community like creating that community in your work and we've heidi and i have gotten so many profound friendships through that event over the years chris cash is a great one you know yeah. he came to yep. the event he just stumbled in the door one year and you know winds up becoming one of my best friends so you know yeah. it, the reward you know from doing that event has been just profound yeah it's hard to it's hard to grow if you don't open yourself up and it's hard to like branch out of the community if you don't open yourself up so like having that ability and seeing i think that the fact that you saw the this opportunity to do something that not a lot of the other people were doing that had um had its own innate value to it that other people would learn from and would pull in from that's yeah that's it's a it's an awesome thing and like you said it's not a, it's not people were doing other hammer-ins but that's something that was it, it felt really like genuine and refreshing and there was a ton of great people there and and you guys had a meal and it was just it was a very yeah. like positive community it was it was super nice to go we'll definitely uh definitely be back and if any like anyone who's listening if you're in the maryland area maryland pa virginia you know if you're within an hour and a half or two hours of maryland it's worth it to come and check out the studio and uh, see yep. what matt has to offer super cool it's, it's usually the third saturday in october but if you follow me on social media i always make posts about it yeah, man. Good. Uh, cool. The one one thing that I appreciate the free food, and you can tell it's like <laughs> yeah. your wife and and whoever wants to help out. And <laughs> everyone pitched in, made stuff. My wife was real jealous because I had some dirt cake, you know, the dessert. <laughs> yeah. And my wife, for some reason, ever since this last kid 
like when she was pregnant and now she constantly talks. I'm like, what do you want? I'll get you a snack. I'll go buy you something. She's like, I want dirt cake. I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't think we can just get a That's thing a like a bucket of, of dirt cake. So I came back. I was like, man, I had two types of dirt cake. I had <laughs> chocolate and vanilla. She was bitter. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's yeah, awesome. That's so funny. <laughs> nice. All right, Matt, do you have a uh, recommendation for the listeners this week? Um, yes. I, so uh, years ago, I did um, a tool partnership with a company called Tiger Stop, and uh, we did a, a video in exchange for a discount on this tool. But we, we grabbed a tool from them called Sawgear, and I mean, our contract with them ended five years ago. That tool single-handedly on the metal cutting side has made us more money than any other tool. So um, it's basically an automatic measuring back gauge. So like where we used to go, take a tape measure, you know, put a little chalk line, go over to the saw, try try to line up the chalk line. Instead, you just type in a number, the backstop moves to the number, you bump the material to it, and you cut it. And that thing is stupid Mm. accurate. And I have no obligation to them, but I'm so passionate (laughs) about that tool. Um, (laughs) Yeah, the the one that we have is called Saw Gear, which is the more basic one. I'd like to have the more robust version, which is called Tiger Stop, but that's an amazing tool. And um, yeah, so that would be like a quick um tool recommendation and then yeah my my other recommendation honestly is like community either maker camp Mm -hmm. or a local blacksmith guild like you know blacksmith guild of central maryland or you know if you're in a pottery whatever don't Mm -hmm. be an island you know get involved get get the right people around you develop community in your work so those those are my recommendations That's great, man. I think, yeah, I I completely agree. I think having people to talk to around you that are like-minded and who have similar interests to you, it's like it only helps to positively perpetuate (laughs) your desire to keep creating and moving and making stuff. And, you know, that's, that's one of those things that we don't always get after college, you know, after you have this big community around you where you have a group of people that are kind of doing the thing that you want to do. And especially with, with art school where I'm like in the studio all the time, like once you leave, you lose that opportunity. And so then you have to go out and make those opportunities. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a really good recommendation. So yeah. I appreciate yeah. That. And, and it just gives you something to look forward to, to go out and do something like every year. Like I think the older I get, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get, landmarks during my year that I'm going to hit that I look forward to like all right in two months I'm going here in a month I'm going to see these people it's a great thing to fill up the calendar absolutely yeah Yeah. Yeah. I have a question about the uh, tiger stop and or saw gear whichever one you you were using or both of them so is this something that attaches to um your chop saw or whatever you have like a chop saw station that it like you build it as part of that how does it work yes so you have to integrate it into um whatever tool that you want to use it with we have it with our um horizontal cutting bandsaw and we we set it to the side of that so you you do have to use like some brackets to integrate but you could you could integrate it with a simple wood chop saw um i've seen some guys online doing that um we we have an iron worker that punches holes we could actually make a separate mount to mount it to the iron worker so that we could like you know punch a hole every four inches and just you know yeah yeah, it's 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 crazy um 
cool tool. I, you know, we don't have that much CNC equipment, so that's like the closest thing to CNC <laughs> that we have. So I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. <laughs> it's yeah, you wouldn't think like making a measurement and like cutting to the measurement would save you time, but I can I can imagine just like. Boop, it does it all the way for you. You know it's and it's accurate, right? That's that like uh, measure cut measure once, cut twice. Yeah. Measure it, twice, cut once, you know. <laughs> even with a horizontal bandsaw, and you know they tend to cut just slightly rough, but even mm -hmm. with that, that thing is accurate to within like five thou of an inch. It's stupid. <laughs> um nice. and and what I thought when I first got it I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to recalibrate this thing like every week. Man, we don't touch the recalibration for like a month sometimes it, mm. it, if it gets knocked you know by a piece of stock coming off you, you need to recheck it but it's right right yeah it's been a, such a game changer because like going back to making a cut you know measuring chalk line you know make the cut well if you add that up times like three thousand four thousand five thousand cuts a year right, I mean, right. It just, it's it is an insane amount of time saved so mm -hmm. yeah yeah that thing's been awesome sweet right on all right dev what do you have um, well, I got, uh, something I've been listening to, which we, uh, a group of people we always shout out and we like is Meat Eater, their podcast, but the, um, they just put out, it's, it's an audio book. It's called Meat Eaters, American History, The Long Hunters. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's Steve Ranella and Clay Newcomb, Newcomb, Newcomb who does the, uh, Bear Grease, Bear which Grease. we listen to a bunch of those. So like two of my favorite guys, great great storytellers and hunters they're talking about the long hunters in the 1700s like daniel boone and stuff the people who would go out and hunt white-tailed deer and go um over the appalachians and go that way and it was they call it the old frontier back when going as far as you could was to the mississippi so everyone who would go over the mountains and hunt and try Very to cool. try to and try to get whitetail and that's where the, the term a buck, like a dollar, came from because one buck skin was worth one peso. Oh, so if, if you had a buck, it was, you know, each each deer hide you got, each leather tanned was one buck. 20 bucks. So yeah, stuff like geez. that. But they're just great <laughs> storytellers, man. And, it, you know, they go into Daniel Boone and all those type of people and what they went through and, you know, and, and dealing with Native Americans because they didn't want them there either because they're basically poaching their land and, and they're 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 dealing with that stuff, you know, getting wiped out or 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 chased around. It's just great, um, good old, um, like folk tales, but you know, steeped in history. And but it's really good. And it, I think it's on Spotify for free because I thought I'd have to buy it. And then I just saw because I've been paying for Spotify because I got like a deal in three months. Right. It's like included in premium. I was like, yep. So I'm like halfway through. It's, <laughs> I've listened to like eight hours. It's great. Nice. Nice What's that friend. called again? Uh, Meat Eaters, American History, The Long Hunters. Okay, that sounds cool. Those those guys are great, and they they got they um, tell a great story, and they they go really in depth in uh, in their history of of uh, American history. Sweet. Right on. Well, my uh, my recommendation this week is. Uh, Chris Powell on Instagram. His Instagram is full steam designs. Um, Chris is in the maker community. Uh, I've, I've met him at maker camp a couple times, but I recommend him specifically because he's been doing a lot of stuff uh, with blacksmithing and integrating it into his work. But really just like he's been recently taking um, 
blacksmithing classes where he has some kind of like maybe a intermediate or master level classes where he's doing some really specific type of like uh, connections and different scorework and stuff. And he's just showing the work on his Instagram with um, a very like humble, not, uh, not, just kind of like this is what i'm doing this is the work that i'm working on and this is how you know this is what i'm learning it's it's really um like refreshing to see him going through this stuff and just showing his work and showing his the things that he's been making and he's been doing blacksmithing for a long time but like just coming at it within a in like from a student's perspective and like this is this is the work that i'm doing and this is what i'm learning it's so it's really nice and he mixes in all sorts of cool stuff chris has been also building like a hot rod out of wood um for a bunch of years and and it's on all sorts of cool stuff and he's been on other podcasts and stuff but uh also he'll show stuff of like redoing his house he's been redoing his house and showing crazy stuff behind the walls that he finds and all sorts of cool stuff but uh chris is a good guy and uh, his instagram is full steam design so you can check him out yeah, he does very cool work, and he also broke the internet with dry mix concrete. I thought that was yeah, hilarious. I don't right, know if exactly. you guys saw that, but the, yep. <laughs> the comments on that were insane. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing, all the uh, the armchair experts that come out when you try to show something. <laughs> yeah, right. It's funny because this is uh, full steam designs. He was like no, doing... No. I was going to say who... Oh, I forget my point. I was going to... Who was it that, remember we were talking about doing, like, it would be funny if we did things oh, on right. purpose wrong just to get right. comments. <laughs> so you say yeah, something totally that? off, like, I oh, don't really need to heat this steel up. Just bang it for a while, and it'll, like, move <laughs> enough. And everyone's like, what are you talking You need to, how are you, you that can't just, like, do something totally wrong or just have a whole April Fool's uh, video of doing everything wrong and just see how people react. <laughs> That's a great idea. I'll look for that on April 1st. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right, Matt. Well, uh, where can uh, where can people find your work and find uh, you know find you on social media or, in, or the internet? Uh, my website is MatthewHarris.studio. Um, Instagram is MatthewHarrisStudio. Same on YouTube and Facebook. Yep. Awesome right on yeah you guys definitely got to check out matt's stuff it's it's amazing it's it's i would say definitely i i don't know a ton of architectural blacksmiths but it's number one like your your design sense um is and i told you this in person like i love the way that you that you kind of balance history or historical metalworking with your own design sense and and like a fresh take in how things go together it's just a really really uh like your design sense is really strong and i think i see that heavily in your work and i, I love it so thank definitely, you uh, absolutely um, and you guys can uh, head over. You can find us on YouTube at The Art of Craftsmanship and on Instagram at The Art of Craftsmanship and The Art of Camera Guy. You can follow along with both of us to see what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, and if you want to support the podcast, you can, the podcast and everything we do on YouTube, you can head over to uh, patreon.com forward slash The Art of Craftsmanship and you can support us there. Other than that, everybody, thank you all so much. Matt, it was a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for hanging out with us and chatting. Absolutely, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope my crazy story has encouraged someone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man, Devin's always a pleasure. Everybody else, thank you Go all Ravens. so much for listening. Oh, yeah. Go Ravens. <laughs> Ravens. <laughs> Woo! Thank you guys for listening, and we will talk to you next time.
What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.